He is risen. He is risen indeed. And he is, in fact, still rolling stones. This same Jesus who rolled away the original stone continues to do the same thing in a very, very real and palpable way right here, right now, 2,000 years later. Now, 2,000 years after the original Rolling Stone, for us, Rolling Stone is a pop culture icon. You know, the, the greatest rock band of all time, garage rock band, I should say, is, of course, the Rolling Stones. There, there's a, a magazine that chronicles the ebb and flow of pop culture going back to 1967. That is, of course, Rolling Stone. The Temptations had a hit. Papa was a Rolling on and on it goes. But all of these pop culture touchstones trace their roots back to a Muddy Waters song that he recorded in 1950, just simply titled Rolling Stone. And all of these things are kind of a part of the fabric of our culture and our lives, and yet they pale in comparison to the original Rolling Stone. If you go back and look in the biblical record of Jesus' resurrection, the fact of Jesus' resurrection, there is an incredible amount of detail devoted to that morning. If you've got a Bible with you, look in Mark chapter 16. There, there are other places where the resurrection is recorded, Matthew chapter 28, Luke chapter 24, we'll spend a little time in there today, but also in John chapter 20. But in Mark chapter 16, I think it, it sets the stage really well for the context around the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we celebrate this Easter morning. Mark chapter 16, the Bible says this. On Saturday evening, when the Sabbath had ended, that's the Jewish Sabbath, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the, way, on the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. The original rolling stone. This is the first example in human history of rock and roll. This is what happened the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. And make no mistake about it, this is not an allegory. This is a historical fact. If you're an academic, it's an historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And not only did he rise from the dead and roll that stone away, he is still rolling stones. What I mean by that is this. This same Jesus is still replacing death with life, despair with hope, chaos with order, anxiety with peace. He is still rolling stones, and it still matters right here, right now, 2,000 years later. This is our God. This is what he does. And it's, it's not just on Easter Sunday morning. It's day in and day out. As a matter of fact, I thought about a, a day in and day out years and years ago in our household. When our kids, who are now 
24 and 22. They're not kids anymore. But when they were very young, Emily and Joe were about six and I think four years old. On one particular Easter morning, they got out of bed and raced to the Easter baskets to see what was there for them. And they pulled out the staples of Easter Sunday morning. I'm talking about the chocolate Easter bunny. You have to bite the ear off and see if it's the whole one or the hollow one. You know what I'm talking about? The Reese's Pieces in the shape of an egg and all of those staples. But on this particular Easter morning, both Emily and Joe had in their baskets swim goggles. It was springtime. Summer was coming in Texas. The Easter Bunny was very forward-looking. And so Emily, who, who, bless her heart, shares a lot of her father's personality traits, which means you should pray for her. Emily was so excited over the swim goggles, she took them out of the basket and began to very quickly and forcefully put them down on her head. And she was so excited and so enthusiastic that as she pulled them down over her head, she snapped the headband that keeps them around your head. And Joseph was still kind of over here just kind of piddling around in his basket, pulling out candy, kind of dribbling down his chin a little bit. And Julie and I saw this goggle debacle unfolding before our eyes. And you could see in Emily, have you ever watched your kids and you see when the tears kind of puddle and pool up before they start to spill over? That's where we were. And Emily said, Mommy, I broke, I broke my goggles. Joseph heard this, never skipped a beat, looked through his basket, found his swim goggles, pulled them out and said this, here you do, Emmy, you can have mine. Julie and I looked at each other like we are the greatest parents in the world. <laughs> now, I have to tell you, in all honesty, I, I, I can't claim a lot of credit for that because that's a lot of how Joe just got here. That's just kind of his personality, his spirit. And, and I will never forget, Julie and I could not wait to see what was going to happen next. After he here you go, Emmy, you didn't have mine. Emily looked at the goggles. She looked at us. She looked at the goggles. She looked at us. And she just took them. <laughs> said, thanks, Joe. And as she very carefully placed Joe's goggles around her head, she looked up at Julie and she said, I would never have done that. <laughs> now, what's great, Julie, Julie's trying to be a reassuring mom, you know, and kind of feed the fire of positivity. She goes, oh, honey, yes, you. if Joe had broken his, of course you would give him yours. And she said, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> In that moment... Joe was the only member of our household who could replace what had been lost when Emily broke her goggles. In Easter, we celebrate the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone can replace what was broken, what was lost in our sin, in our brokenness. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who had the authority, who had the audacity to defy death, to get up out of the grave with the promise of a new life, with the promise of forgiveness of sin. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who has the authority, the truth, and the amazing grace to do that. This is Easter, and we celebrate the resurrection. But I think in order for us to adequately or even appropriately celebrate the resurrection, we have to first 
understand, we, we have to get our minds and our hearts around the crucifixion. Because the fact of the matter is that Jesus did rise from the dead. He got up out of a grave that he had occupied, but he first went to the cross. This Jesus who was born just like you and I were born, he, he grew up, but then he went on to do something that none of us has ever done. He went on to live a sinless life. Sinless. Can you even, I mean, that, just the concept of that, I think, blows a circuit to understand that Jesus growing up in Nazareth, there in the home of Joseph the carpenter and his mother Mary, Jesus never disrespected his parents. Can you even imagine such a thing? I mean, that's a, that's a great goal, but Jesus achieved that goal. Jesus never, ever had an impure impulse. He, he never lashed out in self-centered anger. He certainly got angry, but it was only when it was appropriate and because the purposes and kingdom of God was being prostituted there in the temple. Jesus never missed an opportunity to confront those who needed to be confronted. And if you read the story and the facts of Jesus' life, it's interesting that most of the time he did confronting, it was with the religious intelligentsia. It was with those self-appointed religious watchdogs. That was who Jesus had the biggest problem with. But he lived this sinless life and then was condemned to die on a Roman cross, the death of a common criminal on this, on this cross in this very publicly humiliating way. And the Bible says that there on the cross, this incredible spiritual transaction took place. That Jesus chose to go to the cross, and there on the cross, he exchanged his holiness, his righteousness, his moral perfection for our sin. For, for all of your junk, my junk, the stuff that we're ashamed of, the stuff that we hope Nobody ever finds about, out about that never shows up on a video screen somewhere. Jesus chose to take all of that on himself. And the Bible says that he became our sin. Your sin and my sin. Everything you've ever done wrong put Jesus on that cross. And because he was there on the cross and became our sin, he experienced the weight, he experienced the consequences and the penalty of sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That, that sin always takes us away from the life that God created us to live. That sin separates, sin isolates us, not only from God, but also from each other. You chase any sin long enough, you will end up in it alone. And there on the cross, Jesus experienced exactly that. It wasn't just the physical death brought on by hours of hanging on the cross and the asphyxiation and, and finally his lungs filling up with fluid. It was also the spiritual death, the, the separation, the isolation from God the Father. Because when he became our sin, a holy and righteous, perfect God could have nothing to do with him. And so that's why Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because he took on our sin. He, he took it on and he died. 
and he died just before sundown on a Friday. Now, in the Jewish week, sundown Friday is the beginning of the Sabbath. It goes from sundown Friday till sundown Saturday. And because he died just before sundown, the, the followers of Jesus, who were largely Jew, Jewish, took his body from the cross and very quickly laid him in a borrowed grave. A man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea had given part of his family's plot for the body of Jesus, and they, they quickly laid his body in there to be prepared for long-term entombment after the Sabbath. That's why these women were going to the grave on this Sunday morning. Now, when we say that Jesus was buried in a grave, I think it's important to understand the context. It's not that they buried people in a hole six feet down like we do in a, in a coffin, because that, that area is incredibly rocky. That, that terrain is a lot like Central Texas, very, very rocky, just underneath a thin layer of topsoil, and, and they had to bury bodies without the benefit of bobcats and backhoes. So what they would do is they would find naturally occurring caves, and they would use these caves as graves. We, we've got a picture of, one, of an example of one. This is not necessarily the one that Jesus was laid in, but it's a good example of it. You'll see that a stonemason has carved an entrance into this cave kind of as a formal place, but then they would also take a large boulder and carve that wheel out of it. That, that's the stone that the women were worried about being in front of the opening to Jesus' grave usually in about five to six feet of diameter. It would weigh anywhere between three and 4,000 pounds, a ton and a half to two tons. So you understand why these three women are a little concerned about how they're going to get at the body of Christ. But something remarkable happens. When they arrive at the tomb, and this is from Luke's account in Luke chapter 24. This picks up right where we left them off in Mark chapter 16. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. I love that Luke includes this part of the facts in his account. Now, the two men who appeared to them, we, we know from other contexts biblically to be angels or messengers from God, and they're in dazzling clothes because they have been in the presence of God and the glory of God still travels with them. So they're, they're dazzling in their appearance. They, they, they carry with them the glory of God because they've been in the presence of God. And I, but here's what I love about this passage in Luke. The women stood there puzzled. I can't tell you how many times I've read this passage and it's never hit me like it did this year. The women stood there puzzled. Has anybody here ever been puzzled by God? Can I just see a show of hands? If you've ever, you've ever kind of like wondered, like I don't understand everything. It, three of you, thank you for your honesty. I appreciate that. Everybody else seems to get it. Maybe it's just us. But they stood there puzzled. That, that's, that's encouraging to me. These women who had followed Jesus in his ministry, they had heard words come out of the mouth of of Jesus himself. They had seen him perform miracles. They had heard him say that he would rise on the third day. And yet these followers of Jesus stood in the empty tomb puzzled. I thought about that for a little while. Why were they puzzled? They, they had heard Jesus say he was going to rise again. Why were they puzzled? 
And then I, I thought about my own spiritual journey, and, and it hit me. They were puzzled because they forgot. They forgot. Have you ever forgotten? So sometimes life clutters up our faith. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the day in and the day out, we get so consumed with the clutter of life that we forget the promise of life, that we forget the life that is truly life that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to facilitate for us. And when we forget, that's when we get anxious. That's, that's when we get nervous. That's when we get stressed. That's when we get testy. That's when we forget. When we forget. I, I've noticed in my own life, when I get anxious, it's usually because I've forgotten. It's, when I get anxious, see if this doesn't ring true for you. When we get anxious, it's usually over something that hasn't yet happened but might. That, that's, I think, most of us, when we think about anxiety, when we think about unrest, it, it's because we're worried about something that might happen, which means it hasn't happened, which means it's not yet real. That doesn't mean it can't happen, but it means it hasn't happened. It's not yet real. So in that moment, we have to remember what's true. We have to remember what's real. We have to remember the faithfulness of God that has brought us to this point. We have seen, we have tasted the goodness of God, and we remember that. And all of a sudden, the details may not have changed. The circumstances may not have changed. But our perspective changes supernaturally. Look, look, at, what, look at what happens immediately following. Verse 5, the women were terrified, and they bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Don't we do that? Don't, don't we a lot of times look for the living? We look for life amongst the dead. We know in our heart of hearts that nothing, nothing in this world can satisfy like a relationship with God. There, there's nothing. There's no amount of money. There's no human relationship. There's no amount of status. There's no amount of pleasure. There's no amount of high. There is nothing that will satisfy when we try to replace God at the center of our lives. And every time we do that, we are looking for the living among the dead. Look at what the angel said to these women. He said, remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day. It goes on to say, then they remembered. Then they remembered. I want you to turn to your neighbor and with Easter enthusiasm tell him, don't you forget. You know what? I think that's part of the genius of God in, in giving us the gift of each other, the gift of the church. That, that we, when we gather together weekly, we, we remember, because Monday to Saturday can get a little crazy, can't it? I mean, we, we live in a harsh spiritual environment. 
But when we gather together weekly, when we come back around each other, we're reminded of the goodness of God. We're reminded of the truth, the reality, the grace of God. We're reminded of the encouragement when we just see each other and we're in the same place. We're reminded that we're not alone in this. And because we're not alone, we may not be crazy. Tell your neighbor now, you may not be crazy. Now, we don't have time to diagnose everyone. But that's part of God's genius in calling us to gather. It's that we remember. We hold on to that which is true. We hold on to that which is real. And we pass it on to our kids. We, we show them what it means to be the body of Christ. That they can be a part of a lot of different groups and clubs and teams throughout their lives, and they should be, but when it's all said and done, there's only one group that is guaranteed success. There's only one group that is guaranteed eternal viability, and that is the church. That is the bride of Christ. That's why we pass it on generation to generation to generation because of this gift that God has given us. It's part of why Paul wrote what he wrote to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, he said, I also pray that you will understand, that you will grasp the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul's saying, I, I want you to own this. I, I want you to experience it. You, you, you can't understand the power of God apart from experiencing the power of God. It's one thing to be reminded of it on Easter Sunday and to be reminded that Jesus rose from the dead and that that power is available day in and day out to live the life you were created to live. But it's entirely another to experience it on the regular. It's entirely another to take a hold of it and own it. You know what? As a matter of fact, I, I want to go back. Remember the, the goggle debacle that we were talking about earlier? That, that Easter Sunday morning? There's, there's a really important moment in there that, that you might miss if we don't just take a second and camp out. It was obviously a very, very cool thing that Joe offered Emily, his goggles. That, that, was, that was a great move. Four-year-old, 40-year-old, I don't care who you are. But there was also that moment when Emily recognized the opportunity, the gift that was being extended to her, and she took the goggles. That wasn't selfish on Emily's part. That was just smart. I mean, she knew enough. She was six years old. She knew that Julie and I were not going to let Joe go without. <laughs> I mean, it's not like we went, well, Joe, sorry, you were generous. You're going to have to do without for the rest of the summer. Good luck, buddy. Hope your eyes don't get too burned into chlorine. But Emily, Emily took the goggles. She, she put the goggles on. And, and she, she experienced the blessing of the goggles. Jesus has offered you the life that is truly life. Jesus has proved 
that he has the authority over death. He demonstrated his dominion over death. He showed his superiority over sin and suffering. And he offers it to you personally. Not just in the cosmos, not just in the world, but but to you by name. You are brilliant if you will just take it. Because Jesus is the only one who can replace what is lost in our sin. He is the only one who can replace that which was broken. And it's there for the taking. If you're here on this Easter Sunday and you've You've never accepted that free gift. In just a second, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. You don't have to to pass a test. You don't have to show up for a class over the next six months. It's It's like the song at the very beginning of our service. Derek, Derek said the word so brilliantly. This is not a fight. This is surrender. This is surrendering your life to the only one who will never take advantage of it. You're surrendering your life to one who has already surrendered his life to you. And he invites you into that life that is abundant, that is overflowing, that is shaken and pressed down and spilling over. And it's there for the taking. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And in this moment, if you feel like God is leading you and and you want to take hold of that, then we invite you just to pray right where you're sitting, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning, just silently. Just talk to God from your heart to his and say something like this. Just silently say, Jesus, I need you. I want this life that is truly life. I want and I need forgiveness from my sin, so I confess my sin. Lord, all of it, holding nothing back. In order to receive your forgiveness, And Jesus, in exchange for your life, I give you mine. And I will follow you from this moment forward with everything that I've got. I pray this prayer, Jesus, in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for just a moment. Because this is a sacred moment. And if that was your prayer and you meant it, then this is the biggest moment of your life. And as a church, we want to help with what comes next. We want to serve you. And so, if you would, I want to ask you to do a couple of things that will help us with that. Number one, if you would just right now, if you just prayed that prayer of commitment and surrender... Look in your program that you got when you came in and just quietly take out the connect card that's inside it. 
Take that out and just right where you are right now, just begin filling that card out. Your name and contact information. About a third of the way down, you'll see a place to indicate there, I committed my life to Christ this week. Mark that space. And then when you finish the card, you can just kind of fold it in half. And when we dismiss in just a couple of minutes, I want to ask you to make sure that you hand that card to one of our ushers, one of our hosts, or to one of the folks who are outside at the hub underneath the big front porch to your right. But the second thing I want to ask you to do is you finish that card, as our heads are bowed for just another moment, would you just raise your hand? Just lift your hand up high in the air and hold it there, quietly but unmistakably. Your hand in the air is just a physical statement of the spiritual commitment that you just made. It, it's, a, it's a stamp, an imprint in this, of this moment in your life, in the life of this church. Because for us, there's nothing more important than that. And as I said, we want to we be a family of faith with you. We want to come alongside. And we have a family tradition around here as you go ahead and put your hands down. We're going to put our hands together and just tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.